Chapter 1 of The Golden Book of Dutch Navigators. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett, Melbourne, Australia. The Golden Book of Dutch Navigators by Hendrik Willem van Loon. Chapter 1, Part 2, Jan Huygen van Linschoten. The recital of Jan Huygen's trip is a long epic of bungling. The captain did not know his job, the officers were incompetent, the men were unruly and ready to mutiny at the slightest provocation, and everybody blamed everybody else for everything that went wrong. The captain, in the last instance, accused the good law, who would not allow his own faithful people to pass the Cape of Good Hope with their strong and mighty ships, while making the voyage an easy one for the blasphemous English heretics with their little insignificant schooners. In this statement there was more wisdom than the captain suspected. The English sailors knew their business and could afford to take risks. The Portuguese sailors of that day hastened from one coastline and from one island to the next as they had done a century before. As long as they were on the high seas, they were unhappy. They returned to life when they were in port. Every time the Santa Maria passed a few days in some harbour, we get a recital of the joys of that particular bit of paradise. If we are to believe Portuguese tradition, St Helena, where the ship passed a week of the month of May of the year 1589, was placed in its exact geographical position by the Almighty to serve his faithful children as a welcome resting point upon their perilous voyage to the Far Indies. The island was full of goats, wild pigs, chickens, partridges, and thousands of pigeons, all of which creatures allowed themselves to be killed with the utmost ease and furnished food for generations of sailors who visited those shores. Indeed, this island was so healthy a spot that it was used as a general infirmary. After a few days on shore, even the weakest of sufferers was sufficiently strong to catch specimens of the wild fauna of the island. Often, therefore, the sick sailors were left behind. With a little salt and some oil and a few spices, they could support themselves easily until the next ship came along and picked them up. We know what ailed most of these stricken sailors. They suffered from scurvy due to a bad diet but it took several centuries before the cause of scurvy was discovered. When young Huygen went to the Indies, the crew of every ship was invariably attacked by this most painful disease. Therefore, the islands were of great importance. Nowadays, St Helena is no longer a paradise. Three centuries ago, it was the one blessed point of relief for the Indian traders. The diary of Jan Huygen tells of attempts made to colonise the island. The King of Portugal, however, had forbidden any settlement upon this solitary rock. For a while, it had harboured a number of runaway slaves. Whenever a ship came near, they had fled to the mountains. Finally, however, they had been caught and taken back to Portugal and sold. For a long time, the island had been inhabited by a pious hermit he had built a small chapel, and there the visiting sailors were allowed to worship. In his spare time, however, the holy man had hunted goats, 
and he'd entered into an export business of goatskins. Every year, between five and six hundred skins were sold. Then this ingenious scheme was discovered, and the saintly hunter was sent home. On the 21st of May, the Santa Maria continued her northward course. Again, bad food and bad water caused illness among the men. A score of them died. Often they hid themselves somewhere in the hold and had been dead for several days before they made their presence noticeable. It was miserable business. And now, with a ship of sick and disabled men, the Santa Maria was doomed to fall in with three small British vessels. At once there was a panic among the Portuguese sailors. The British hoisted their pennant and opened with a salvo of guns. The Portuguese fled below decks, and the English, in sport, shot the sails to pieces. The crew of the Santa Maria tried to load their heavy cannon, but there was such a mass of howling and swearing humanity around the guns that it took hours before anything could be done. The ships were then very near one another, and the British sailors could be heard jeering at the cowardice of their prey. But just when Jan Huygen thought the end had come, the British squadron veered around and disappeared. The Santa Maria then reached Tercera in the Azores without further molestation. Like all other truthful chroniclers of his day, Jan Huygen speculates about the mysterious island of St. Brandon. This blessed isle was supposed to be situated somewhere between the Azores and the Canary Islands, but nearer to the Canaries. As late as 1721, expeditions were fitted out to search for this famous spot upon which the Irish abbot of the 6th century had located the promised land of the saints. Together with the recital of another mysterious bit of land, consisting of the back of a gigantic fish, this story had been duly chronicled by a succession of Irish monks, and when young Huygen visited these regions, he was told of these strange islands far out in the ocean, where the first travellers had discovered a large and prosperous colony of Christians who spoke an unknown language and whose city could disappear beneath the surface of the ocean if an enemy approached. Once in the roads of Tercera, however, there was little time for theological investigations. Rumour had it that a large number of British ships were in the immediate neighbourhood. Strict orders had come from Lisbon that all Portuguese and Spanish ships must stay in port under protection of the guns of the fortifications. Just a year before that, the Armada had started out for the conquest of England and the Low Countries. The invincible Armada had been destroyed by the Lord, the British and the Dutch. Now the tables had turned, and the Dutch and British vessels were attacking the Spanish and Portuguese colonies. The story of inefficient navigation is here supplemented by a recital of bad military management. The roads of Tercera were very dangerous. In ordinary times, no ships were allowed to anchor there. A very large number of vessels were now huddled together in too small a space. These vessels were poorly manned. For the Portuguese sailors, whenever they arrived in port, went ashore and left the care of their ship to a few cabin boys and black slaves. The unexpected happened. 
During the night of the 4th of August, a violent storm swept over the roads. The ships were thrown together with such violence that a large number were sunk. In the town, the bells were rung and the sailors ran to the shore. They could do nothing but look on and see how their valuable ships were driven together and broken to splinters, while pieces of the cargo were washed all over the shore to be stolen by the inhabitants of the greedy little town. When morning came, the shore was littered with silk, golden coin, china and bales of spices. Fortunately, the wind changed later in the morning and a good deal of the cargo was salved. But once on shore, it was immediately confiscated by officials from the custom house who claimed it for the benefit of the royal treasury. Then there followed a first-class row between the officials and the owners of the goods, who cursed their own government quite as cheerfully as they had done their enemies a few days before. To make a long story short, after a lawsuit of two years and a half, the Crown at last returned 50% of the goods to the merchants. The other half was retained for customs duty. Jan Huygen, who was an honest man, was asked to remain on the island and look after the interests of the owners, while they themselves went to Lisbon to plead their cause before the courts. He now had occasion to study Portuguese management in one of the oldest of their colonies. The principles of hard common sense, which were to distinguish Dutch and British methods of colonising, were entirely absent. Their place was taken by a complicated system of theological explanations. The disaster that befell these islands was invariably due to divine providence. The local authorities were always up against an act of God. While Jan Huygen was in Tercera, the colony was at the mercy of the British. The privateers waited for all the ships that returned from South America and the Indies and intercepted these rich cargoes in sight of the Portuguese fortifications. When the Englishmen needed fresh meat, they stole goats from the little islands situated in the roads. Finally, after almost an entire year, a Spanish-Portuguese fleet of more than 30 large ships was sent out to protect the traders. In a fight with the squadron of Admiral Howard, the ship of his vice-admiral, Grenville, was sunk. The vice-admiral himself, mortally wounded, was made a prisoner and brought on board a Spanish man-of-war. There he died. His body was thrown overboard without further ceremonies. At once, so the story ran, a violent storm had broken loose. This storm lasted a week. It came suddenly, and when the wind fell, only 30 ships were left out of a total of 140 that had been in the harbours of the islands. The damage was so great that the loss of the armada itself seemed insignificant. Of course, it was all the fault of the good Lord. He had deserted his own people and had gone over to the side of the heretics. He had sent this hurricane to punish the unceremonious way in which dead Grenville had been thrown into the ocean. And of course, this unbelieving Britisher himself had at once descended into Hades, had called upon all the servants of the black demon to help him, and had urged this revenge. Evidently, the thing worked both ways. This clever argument did not in the least help the unfortunate owners of the shipwrecked merchandise. 
One fine day, they were informed that they could no longer expect royal protection for the future. Jan Huygen was told to come to Lisbon as best he could. He finally found a ship, and after an absence of nine years, returned to Lisbon. On his trip to Holland, he was almost killed in a collision. Finally, within sight of his native land, he was nearly wrecked on the banks of one of the North Sea Islands. On the 3rd of September of the year 1592, however, after an absence of 13 years, he returned safely to Enkhuizen. His mother, brother and sisters were there to welcome him. He did not at once rush into print. It wasn't necessary. The news of his return spread quickly to the offices of the Amsterdam merchants. They had been very active during the last dozen years, and they had conducted an efficient secret organisation in Portugal, trying to buy up maps and books of navigation, and perhaps even a pilot or two. They knew a few things and guessed at many others. A man who had actually been there who knew concrete facts where other people suspected, such a man was worthwhile. Jan Huygen became consulting pilot to Dutch capital. The Dutch merchants still found themselves in a very difficult position. They had to enter this field of activity when their predecessors had been at work for almost two centuries. These predecessors, judging by outward evidences, were fast losing both ability and energy, but prestige before an old and well-established name is a strong influence in the calculations of men. Those who directed the new Dutch Republic did not lack courage. All the same, they shrank from open and direct competition with the mighty Spanish Empire. Besides, there were other considerations of a more practical nature. The Middle Ages, both late and early, dearly loved monopoly. Indeed, the entire period between the days of the old Roman Empire and the latter part of the 18th century, when the French Revolution destroyed the old system, was a time of monopolies, or of quarrels about and for monopolies. The Dutch traders wondered whether they could not obtain a little private route to India, something that should be Dutch all along the line and could be closed at will to all outsiders. What about the Northeastern Passage? There seem to have been vague rumours about a water route along the north of Siberia. That part of the map was but little known. The knowledge of Russia had improved since the days when Moscow was situated upon the exact spot where the ocean between Iceland and Norway is deepest. The White Sea was fairly well known, and Dutch traders had found their way to the Russian port of Archangel. What lay beyond the White Sea was a matter of conjecture. Whether the Caspian Sea, like the White Sea, was part of the Arctic Sea or part of the Indian Ocean, no one knew. But it appeared that further to the north, several days beyond the North Cape, There was a narrow strait between an island which the Russians called the New Island, Nova Zembla, and the continent of Asia. This might prove to be a shorter and less dangerous route to China and the Indies. Furthermore, by building fortifications on both sides of the Narrows, between the island and the Siberian coast, the Hollanders would be the sole owners of the most exclusive route to India. 
They could then leave the long and tedious trip around the Cape of Good Hope, with its perils of storms, scurvy, royal and inquisitorial dungeons, savage negroes, and several other unpleasant incidents, to their esteemed enemies. The men who were most interested in this northern enterprise were two merchants who lived in Middleburg, the capital of the province of Zeeland. The better known of the two was Balthazar de Moucheron, an exile from Antwerp. When the Spanish government reconquered this rich town, it had banished all those merchants who refused to give up their Lutheran or Calvinistic convictions. Their wealth was confiscated by the state. They themselves were forced to make a new start in foreign lands. The foolishness of this decree never seems to have dawned upon the Spanish authorities. They felt happy that they had ruined and exiled a number of heretics. What they did not understand was that these heretics did not owe their success to their wealth, but to the sheer ability of their minds. And before long, these penniless pilgrims had laid the foundations for new fortunes. Then they strove with all their might to be revenged upon the government which had ruined them. The Moucheron, one of this large group which had been expelled, had begun life anew in the Free Republic and was soon among the greatest promoters of his day. Of tireless energy and of a very bitter ambition, none too kindly to the leading businessman of his adopted country, he got hold of Jan Huygen and decided to try his luck in a great gamble. He interested several of the minor capitalists of Enkhuizen, and on the 5th of June of the year 1594, Jan Huygen went upon his first polar exploration with two ships, the Mercurius and the Luan. Without adventure, the ships passed the North Cape, sailed along the coast of the Kola Peninsula, where Willoughby had wintered just 40 years before, and reached the Straits of Weygut, the prospective Gibraltar of Dutch aspirations. The conditions of the ice were favourable. On the 1st of August of the year 1594, the two ships entered the Kara Sea, which they called the New North Sea. Then, following the coast, they entered Kara Bay. After a few days, Jan Huygen discovered the small Kara River, the present frontier between Russia and Siberia. He mistook it for the Obai River and thought that he had gone sufficiently eastward to be certain of the practicability of the new route which he had set out to discover. The ice had all melted. As far as he could see, there was open water. He cruised about in this region for several weeks, discovered a number of little islands, and sprinkled the names of all his friends and his employers upon capes and rivers and mountains. Finally, contented with what had been accomplished, he returned home. On the 16th of September of the same year, he came back to the roads of Texel. After that, he was regarded as the leader in all matters of navigation. The stadtholder, Prince Maurice, who had succeeded his father William after the latter had been murdered by one of King Philip's gunmen, sent for Jan Huygen to come to The Hague and report in person upon his discoveries. John of Barneveld, 
the clever manager of all the financial and political interests of the Republic, discussed with him the possibility of a successful Northeastern trading company. Before another year was over, Jan Huygen, this time at the head of a fleet of seven ships, was sent northward for a second voyage. Everybody, from His Highness the Stadtholder, down to the speculator who had risked his last pennies, had the greatest expectations. Nothing came of this expedition. As a matter of fact, Jan Huygen had met with exceptionally favourable weather conditions upon his first voyage. On the second, he came in for the customary storms and blizzards. His ships were frozen in the ice, and for weeks they could not move. Scurvy attacked the crew, and many men died. In October of the same year, he was back in Holland. The only result of the costly expedition was a dead whale that the captain had towed home as an exhibit of his good intentions. He was still a young man, not more than 45, but he had had his share of adventures. He did not join the third trip to the north in the next year, about which we shall give a detailed account in our next chapter. He was appointed treasurer of his native city. There he lived as its most respected citizen until the year 1611, when he died and was buried with great solemnity. His work had been done. In the year 1595, the itinerary of his voyage to the East Indies had been published. By this book he will always be remembered. For a century it provided a practical handbook of navigation, which guided the Dutch traders to the Indies, allowed them to attack the Spaniards and Portuguese in their most vulnerable spot, and gave them the opportunity to found a colonial empire, which has lasted to this very day. End of part two and end of chapter one.